This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 20, Exodus chapters 21 through 24. So, for the first time since Genesis's genealogy lists, there's a break in the action. But it's not really a break as it is a continuation of what God was telling Moshe in the previous episode. The Ten Statements. Or more like, One Statement and Nine Commandments. Followed up by some more commandments. And since you're listening, here are a whole lot more commandments. Dealing with the treatment of Hebrew serfs, personal injury law, the famous eye-for-an-eye formulation, the infamous goring ox case, the equally infamous ox falling into a pit case, early formulations of the stand-your-ground law, the limits of usufruct, the laws of the market, borrowing, renting, and lending, what happens when a man seduces a virgin, what to do with sorceresses, or folks who like diddling sheep. Well, it's not just limited to sheep, it covers all animals, really. And, And folks who like diddling animals are, quote, to be put to death. Yes, death. Then, God moves on to discuss something which, sadly, is becoming an increasingly pressing issue today, the status and treatment of the stranger, or refugees, which God says we should not mistreat because, quote, sojourners you were in the land of Egypt. And since we're talking about vulnerable people, God goes on to say that we should not afflict the widow and orphan either. Else, quote, my anger will flare up and I will kill you with the sword, so that your wives become widows and your children orphans. God continues to discuss proper meal etiquette, decorum in court, and the running of a fair legal system, the need for a day of rest, and the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And since we're talking about visiting God, God spends a little time talking about appropriate presents to bring. And since we're talking about manners, God reminds Moshe to tell the Jews that they should not give Moshe a hard time because the Jews would never give Moshe a hard time. No, ever, never, never. Moshe, God says, has a lot of leading to do, and God gives a little preview of what's to come, about all the nations the Jews will destroy and annihilate and whose land they'll come to possess, and how everyone will be fruitful, quote, there will be no miscarrier or barren one in your land. But only if they, that is the Jews, do not run after other gods or cut covenants with the locals. When God finishes this briefing, he tells Moshe that he needs to bring Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu, Aharon's sons, and the 70 elders with him the next time, but not all the way up the mountain, so that the deal can be sealed properly between the Jews and God. Moshe descends, writes all of this down, builds an altar, and erects 12 standing stones, one for each tribe, and tells the Jews to bring some sacrifices because he is going to read the terms of the covenant aloud to them. When that's done, Moshe summons the requested entourage and they ascend part of the way. And then God tells Moshe that he should come on up so that, quote, I may give you the tablets of stone, the instructions and the command that I have written down to instruct them. Moshe tells the elders to stay and that Aharon and Hur are in charge of legal matters. And off he goes up into the clouds, covering the mountaintop for 40 days and 40 nights. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. Speaking of uh, sheep diddling, as if you could really ever say that in polite conversation, here's a rather compelling would you rather to start things off. Would you rather not diddle a sheep, but have everyone be convinced that you did, or 
diddle a sheep, but no one ever know. You can leave your thoughts about this at the Facebook page. In this episode, I want to talk about a rather weighty and, and fraught topic. And no, it, it's not sheep diddling. I want to talk about abortion, or more importantly, what we say when we talk about abortion. You can scour the whole of the Tanakh and not find the word abortion anywhere, and yet this week's portion provides the basis for Jewish legal understanding of this highly contentious and personal matter. And what's even more interesting about the abortion debate in Jewish law, or halacha, is the sturm und drang over the past century and how external influences and internal forces have framed the discussion in our thinking. But first, let's have a look at how this week's portion actually relates to abortion. So if we open up our texts to Exodus chapter 21, verses 21 to 25, this is what we'll find. When two men scuffle and deal a blow to a pregnant woman, so that her children are brought forth, but other harm does not occur, he is to be fined, yes, fined, as the woman's spouse imposes for him. But he is to give it only according to assessment. But if harm should occur, then you are to give life in place of life, eye in place of eye, tooth in place of tooth, hand in place of hand, foot in place of foot, burnt scar in place of burnt scar, wound in place of wound, bruise in place of bruise. Although uh, Everett Fox renders the phrase Yatsu Yaldeha as her children abort forth, what happens here is actually a miscarriage. Two men are brawling, and during the fight, they topple a pregnant woman who subsequently miscarries. As the text explains, if the only harm that comes to the woman is the miscarriage, the penalty levied is a fine. But, but, uh-huh, if the woman incurs any other injury, then the penalty is considerably more severe. From the differing penalties, we can understand that the fetus and the mother are different. Kill a fetus, pay the fine. Kill the mother, then it's an eye for an eye, a life for a life, etc. Which means that the fetus is not a life, or at least not a full-fledged life like the mother. And so this is where the debate begins. And, and if you track the thinking through the sources and consider the context in which Jewish thinkers lived, the dots kind of almost connect themselves. So we can begin, uh, again, not necessarily arbitrarily, but Let's begin with the Hellenistic period, where you start to begin to see the emergence of this kind of literature, and Jewish thinkers were heavily influenced by, by the two big opposing schools of Greek philosophy. On the one side, there was the Academy, representing the Platonic Aristotelian approach, which considered a fetus as a person, and the Stoics, who considered the fetus a non-person, as the fetus was totally dependent on the mother. So you have Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher at the turn of the first millennia. He falls clearly in the Platonic Aristotelian mode when he writes in his special laws that one who causes an abortion deserves the death penalty. And on the other hand, you have the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, produced by Alexandrian Jews from the 3rd to 2nd century BCE, which states, quote, If there is no form, then he shall be fined, but if it has a form, then you shall give it life for life. This translation, unlike the Hebrew original, has us consider the state of the fetus at the moment of miscarriage. And as the Septuagint became the official Tanakh of early Christians, this position became the starting point for evolving Christian thought about the status of the fetus, a thinking which over the centuries moved further and further and further to the right vis-a-vis -vis the fetus, to the point where Roman Catholic thinking regards ensoulment as happening at conception. 
This installment at the moment of mixed dancing has never been the Jewish position. Uh, though there has been some movement in thinking about the fetus vis-a-vis -vis its vitality and development, no Jewish authority ever regarded the fetus as fully human. As such, abortion has never been considered homicide in halacha. Consider this quote from the Mishnah, Tractate Ohalot, chapter 7, paragraph 6. If a woman suffers hard labor in travail, the fetus must be cut up in her womb and brought out piecemeal. For her life takes precedence over its life. If its greater part has already come forth, it must not be touched. For the claim of one life cannot supersede that of another life. But this pronouncement only applies as long as the fetus remains inside the womb. Rashi, the eminent medieval French commentator, understands this Mishnah to mean that, the, that abortion is permitted because the fetus does not have a nefesh or a soul which raises some interesting questions about, well, zombie fetuses, but surely Rashi wasn't serious about that. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. The Rambam, or as he's known in English, Maimonides, the preeminent medieval Sephardic philosopher and thinker, went one step further. He classified the fetus kerodef, as if the fetus was a pursuer or a pursuer light, air quotes. The law of the Rodef and what one must do to the Rodef comes from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, page 73a, which begins, And these are the ones whom one must save even with their lives. That is, killing the wrongdoer, one who pursues his fellow to kill him, Rodef Akahavirole Horgo, and after a male or a betrothed maiden, to rape them, but one who pursues an animal, or desecrates the Sabbath or commits idolatry are not saved with their lives. So, if I'm sitting on my porch, sipping a mint julep, and I see guy number one and guy number two singing this song as they chase someone down the street. Hey, hey, what's wrong? Come quick, some losers wanna fight us. Oh, not again. I'll go get my gun, okay? You must be loco to mess with us. Don't you know we're dangerous? We'll kill you. I can take whatever means necessary to stop them, including extrajudicial killing and perhaps even a drone strike. Although the Rambam qualifies this law of the Rodef a little bit, stating that if I could have stopped guy number one and guy number two by lesser means, by say, I don't know, tripping them or offering them some of my mint julep, but I kill them instead, then what I did constitutes murder. Anyway, back to abortion. So, so Rambam sees the fetus kerodef, as if the fetus was pursuing the mother. And thus, the life of the mother has priority and killing the fetus is not considered homicide. But this is only applicable until the head of the, or the majority of the body of the fetus is born. And then, as in Mishnah Ohalot, the claim of the baby of, to life does not trump that of the mother's. An interesting move because Rambam also employs Rashi's understanding that a fetus also has no nefesh. So how can a nefeshless entity be a rodef? Is the fetus zombie really a walker? Little girl. I'm a policeman. Little girl. Unless Rambam argues that prior to the birth of the head or the majority of the body in a breech birth, the fetus does not have a nefesh. And after that time, the fetus's status changes. It acquires a nefesh, and the category of rodef applies. 
Maimonides may have been very lenient about abortion prior to the birth of the head or the majority of the body because, aligned with Rashi, he argues that the fetus has no nifish. As you quickly span the centuries in the various piske din or rabbinic pronouncements on abortion, one finds what one could describe as a prevalent pro-choice position. That is, rabbis under specific yet varied and diverse circumstances permit abortion, although these rabbis grapple a bit with Rashi's nefeshless zombie fetus and Rambam's Rodef Walker zombie fetus. In a book published posthumously in 1936 or 1938 entitled Chidushe Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi Al Harambam, or Our Rabbi Chaim the Levite's Novelle on Maimonides, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik reconciled both Rashi and Rambam by creating two new categories, semi-rodef and semi-nefesh. Imagine that, a pursuer who is not a full pursuer, a person who is not a full person. And here's how it works. Rabbi Soloveitchik argues that the principle of rodef consists of two elements. First, you have to save the pursued, and second, you have to stop the rodef, even if it means killing him. But who is the rodef in the case of pregnancy? Is it the fetus, or is it God? The Talmud states explicitly the latter. So, then, since we can't stop the rodef, we should focus on saving the pursued. Is this possible without killing the fetus? So, then Rabbi Soloveitchik argues that the principle of personhood, of life and preserving life, consists of two elements. The first, all life is equally precious. Your blood is not redder than mine, and vice versa. And second, the notion of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life. One can disregard almost every commandment in the Torah in order to save a life. So, you ready? When Rambam says that the fetus is kerodef, like a rodef, the fetus like every other Rodef, has a nefesh, and therefore his or her life is as precious as that of any other person. His or her life cannot be ended unless his or her birth will endanger his or her mother's life, in which case he or she will be a full-fledged Rodef, not like a Rodef, in which case you can preserve the life of the mother and kill the fetus. But if the birth does not endanger, then the fetus still having a nefesh is entitled to protection under the principle of pikuach nefesh. So, this is how the fetus is a semi-rodef and a semi-nefesh. Ta-da! I'll return to Reb Chaim Soloveitchik in a moment, or, or more specifically, I'll return to his great-grandson, who's also named Chaim, in a moment. What's most important to keep in mind is that at no point in the responsa literature, that is, in the written responses written by rabbis to specific halachic questions, up to the 20th century is abortion considered murder. There are positions which allow abortion even when the mother's life is not at stake, and most important, lenient positions outnumber the more stringent positions. But then this happened. In 1973, U.S. Supreme Court ruling Roe v. Wade decided that a right to privacy under due process clause of the 14th Amendment extended to a woman's decision to have an abortion. But that right must be balanced against the state's two legitimate interests in regulating abortions, protecting prenatal life, and protecting women's health. And in Canada, the 1988 Supreme Court of Canada's ruling on R.V. Morgenthaler declared that the abortion provision in the Criminal Code of Canada 
was unconstitutional as it violated a woman's right under Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms to security of person. And with that, the Catholic Church and fundamentalist Christian groups declared war on abortion rights. And with that, Orthodox rabbinic positions on abortion swung right as well. The pro-choice position was considered morally reprehensible on the basis of a line in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, page 59a, that states that whatever is forbidden to Gentiles should certainly be forbidden to Jews. And here, I guess, is the essence of the matter, that the language one finds in these later responsa and the positions advocated there had no basis in traditional Jewish sources. Why? Were Orthodox rabbis echoing the fundamentalist Christian discourse? Perhaps. But here is where Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik's great-grandson comes in. This Rabbi Soloveitchik, also named Chaim, is a rabbi and a doctor, and he wrote a piece for the journal Tradition in 1994 entitled Rupture and Reconstruction, the Transformation of Contemporary Orthodoxy. I'll provide a link to the whole piece on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. In this piece, Reb Chaim observes a disturbing trend in modern orthodoxy, a humra or stringency heretofore unseen in Jewish communal living. Quote, what had been a stringency peculiar to the right in 1960, a Lakewood or B'nai Brak Chumra, had become in the 1990s a widespread practice in modern Orthodox circles and among its younger members an axiomatic one. He goes on to argue that this tendency toward Chumra or stringency is not posturing for outsiders, but imminent. That's imminent with, with an A. When living a religious life is virtually indistinguishable from living a non-religious life, you know, you can eat the same breakfast cereals as the next guy, use the same iPhone, PVR the same programs. It softens the edges of observance, but it also softens the edges of its impact. So here's what's for me is the punchline of the piece. Quote, zealous to continue traditional Judaism unimpaired, religious Jews seek to ground their new emerging spirituality less on a now unattainable intimacy with him than on an intimacy with his will avidly eliciting its intricate demands and saturating their daily lives with its, its exactions. Having lost the touch of his presence, they seek now solace in the pressure of his yoke. Woo. So it's no surprise then that since Roe v. Wade and R.V. Morgenthaler in the mid-1990s, this tendency toward Humrah becomes axiomatic, and it's even less of a surprise that religious authorities in the name of preserving a religious life and life itself stray so considerably from the spirit and the letter of the religious law and tradition they seek to enforce. Is that irony, or is it just a sad reworking of that infamous quote from the Vietnam War? It became necessary to destroy the tradition to save it. As always, you're Comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And, and while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 21, on Exodus chapters 25 through 28. Y'all come back now. Yeah.